Hey folks, 13 and 3 here, well into our second season and enjoying it so far with our guest, Minneapolis native, longtime NHL player and Stanley Cup winner, Tom Chorsky. This episode is sponsored by Market & Johnson, Parker Insurance, Valley Sports Academy, Northwoods Therapy, and Chippewa Valley Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, which has been committed to the healthcare needs of patients in western Wisconsin since 1954. Mogi. Tom, we can't thank you enough for uh, coming in and, and talking with us today on our podcast. And we also would like to thank uh, Tom Reed's Hockey City Pub for uh, for hosting us. So thank you so much for meeting us here today. Yeah, it's great. Thanks for uh, coming coming this way and meeting me halfway. And yeah, we're at the iconic Tom Reed's back here. It's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's always fun to be at Reed's. You know, it was kind of fun uh, when we first got here. Uh, we ran into one of our podcast uh, guests, uh, Dean Talifus, who happened to have been one of your scouts back in the day. And uh, so you got a chance to reminisce with him as well. Uh, any stories you want to tell about him uh, that we can share with our <laughs> listeners at this point? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, actually, he was my coach. He, he coached uh, the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers my freshman year. So I had committed to Brad Buto and his staff, but before I got there over the off season, they changed over and Doug Wu came in and his assistants were Dean Talifus and uh, Bill Butters. And so, yeah, I had Dean Talifus as my, uh, one of my first college coaches. And that was quite a while back. I don't think I can remember too many stories from that. I just remember <laughs> him, you know, being around and helping us and being on the ice with us. And, you know, there's no, no scandalous stories to tell there. <laughs> oh, good. We, we only picked the good ones for the show then, Mo, right? That is right? true. That is true. <laughs> you know, we ran into you uh, a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night watching the Beauty League. Uh, a bunch of NHL players that have a great off-season workout. Were you there scouting, watching, or just having a good time like Mogi and I? Yeah, watching, having a good time. It's, uh, it's in a pretty amazing um, event that you know, open to the public, they charge a door fee, but I think some of that goes to charity, but you know, having, having NHLers, you know, on the ice playing four on four hockey and it's really a skill-based game and they're throwing, you know, saucer passes around and having fun at the same time, but it's pretty high paced. Um, I, you know, that's kind of fun. It's in my backyard and I know the guys that run it, Ben Hankinson, you know, was a teammate of mine at, at, at Minnesota and he's a longtime NHL agent now. Um, and, and some of his, uh, colleagues are, you know, Kevin Ziegler trained me. He's, he, he's a trainer now for some of Ben's clients. Uh, I know some of the guys playing, I like to stay close to it. And so I actually, I kind of have unofficial access. I can go down below and, uh, rub elbows with some of the current players and stay in touch with, with them. And I see them around. And so it's, it's just a lot of fun to both watch and then also kind of be around it and, um, our son has actually been able to play in a couple of sessions too, and he's playing in the session tonight. So I'm looking forward to watching that. Who's he, what team is he with? He's playing on Team Walzer, Walzer. Uh, tonight. Well, we plan but, on uh, being there tonight too. Oh, so, good. Uh, well, I told you. I told you how tall he is, so you won't have a hard time seeing him. Yeah, he's think. the short guy on the ice at six foot seven. Six foot seven. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on the Walzer squad. So uh, you you grew up and played your high school hockey in Minneapolis Southwest. So tell us about growing up and playing hockey in your neighborhood. Yeah, so I actually grew up right in you know South Minneapolis, right on the perimeter of Uptown. If uh, anyone knows where Uptown Minneapolis is, and it's sadly taken a turn lately with uh, the the chain of events in in the cities, but um, was a great place to grow up. Uh, had some 
you know, lived right near Lake of the Isles, right near where the ice rink, where they would put it up. And so I would wait every summer until in the fall when I saw them drag the warming shack to the, to the shoreline. And I knew that, uh, it, you know, things weren't too far away and I could walk down, I could see it from my bedroom and I would walk down and just skate, uh, on Lake of the Isles, you know, morning, noon and night. And it really served me well, but it was just something I was just passionate about. My, my, neither of my parents were athletes. I had one younger sister and I, frankly, my mom was happy to see me go out the door and spend time <laughs> skating. It was, you I think. Weren't, weren't picking on your sister then? No, I was too busy down playing, you know, playing puck and hanging out with other kids. You know, those, those became kind of my brothers and things like that. But, and then the high school team, which was lo- locally was Minneapolis West at the time. Uh, and the school was in Uptown, um, but they would practice there after school. And so that was a big deal for me when I was, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old to watch the varsity kids play. And the height, the coach was Jim Baxter, and he was kind of a 30-year coach at the time, legend. I thought he'll never be there when, when I get to high school. And he was watching me as a Bantam and... And he was hoping he was like, I hope you know. He was hoping I would get there, and he would still be there. And I was hoping he'd still be there when I got there. And it worked out. He, I, I played for him, and um, and it, it was it was just wonderful. And and then my high school closed, and I ended up at Southwest. So everyone sees I went to Southwest. I graduated from Southwest in '85, and uh, but that was because my local high school had closed. So. Back in the heyday, uh, St. Paul hockey was big. Minneapolis hockey was big. But in the past, I don't know, couple of generations, you know, the, the hockey has gone out into the suburbs. Well, this winter, the Minneapolis cooperative team actually had a, a team of boys that made it to the state hockey uh, state tournament. What did you think of that? Yeah, that was really that was really exciting. It was really cool to see um, Joe Dietzik, you know, former gopher, and yep. he was a Mr. Hockey winner as well, I think. Tremendous athlete in, in high school. Um, he's been doing that job for a long time, and that's really been his number one, um, I guess, obstacle or hurdle was getting kids to in the city to stick around because Minneapolis at the youth level has done a good job of, of growing youth hockey at the kind of squirt peewee and bantam level. But then the, the trend was for the, the higher-end players, the best players to – either move out or more often uh, go to private school, right? So the parents are happy living in South Minneapolis in, you know, some of the, you know, upper middle class neighborhoods because if they work downtown, they've got good access to downtown and they want to be in Minneapolis. There's people that don't want to live in the suburbs, but yet they didn't want to send their kids to the public school if they were maybe a higher end hockey player. So Blake is real convenient and Breck is convenient and Benilde is convenient. And so Minnehaha Academy in some cases. So those schools started to um, get really good hockey players starting in ninth grade. And we've seen them, those schools, those programs have some success. So for Joe to be able to keep those players and get them to buy in and he had some wonderful talent. And uh, I, I went, I was going to their, to their section games. It was really fun to see. And they had the whole city behind them by the time they got to the state tournament. So they were filling up a big section. It was, it was really fun to watch. Nice. We're going to dig into more about your hockey career here in a second, but you were a multi-sport athlete. As a matter of fact, uh, you were starting quarterback your junior and senior year for your high school team. Any aspirations of moving forward in football rather than hockey? Yeah, you know, playing multi-sports was, I'm, I'm 
in my 50s now. So, yeah, it was a big thing back then. You just played the sport of the season, right? And baseball and football and hockey were the three that I played. And I was a little undersized going into high school, so I stopped playing football my freshman season. And then I grew over the summer, and I showed up at Southwest. And uh, they kind of recruited me back into playing. And um, I, I started playing quarterback, and I'd, I'd been more of a running back and I think like a flanker or something when I was younger. But I loved it. I always liked playing. And when I got back into it, you know, high school football back then was uh, still – a lot of fun because there were, I think we had 10 schools in our Minneapolis conference. So there was nine other teams that you rivaled with on a Friday night. Um, and, and then occasionally we got to play under the lights at parade stadium, which was a big deal. So football, you know, is in high school under the lights is, is a lot of fun. Um, I did enjoy it. I had some D three schools that were talking to me, but I was also pretty Clearly, it was evident that I was going to be playing hockey after college. So there wasn't too much recruiting and there wasn't too much serious uh, pursuit of it on my side. You mentioned baseball. What position did you play in baseball? You know, growing up, I, I they move you around, I guess, a bit. But I worked on pitching, and, and at a pretty young age, I could throw a curveball. And so I was always begging. I was saying, <laughs> let me out there. I want to throw the curveball. Um I, I wasn't a I don't think I was a great baseball player. I wasn't bad, but when I got into high school I tried I played my freshman year and sophomore year and I don't know why I just I couldn't hit for power very well. I and and another thing that happened I got to throw him a bone, but when I got to Southwest I became fast friends with a kid named Chris May. And Chris's father was running Bloomington Ice Ice Guard, Denny May, and he ran it for like 35 years. And so Chris was losing interest in baseball, and he said, come on, just quit baseball. We'll just go out to the rink, and we'll skate instead. And so that's what we did. We quit baseball. We had the keys to the rink, and oh, we would boy. just go out <laughs> and we'd skate. Oh, yeah. We'd, <laughs> Denny was an amazing uh, amazing supporter of uh, young hockey players that he knew. If you were in Bloomington, and he'd always have the pro players out there in the fall and he'd let Chris and I tag along and get to know those guys and eventually skate with them when we were like 17 or 18. But yeah, that was a huge influence to have a best friend that had keys to Bloomington ice garden. His dad would say on a Friday night or any time in the summer, Hey, the last rentals at nine 15, you can go on at ten fifteen, and no one's on after. <clears throat> and we'd open up the, the uh, concessions and drink Mountain Dew all night and turn on <laughs> turn on the radio and play music and shoot pucks and pass pucks and just screw around and and uh, kept us out of trouble for at least a couple of years. Wow, that's awesome. That is great to be able to have that memory. Growing up, um, what was your position of choice in hockey and how did you end up in that position? Well, I think when you're, you know, when you're one of the better players, they put you at center typically, I guess, <clears throat> as a forward, excuse me. Um, I never really wanted to play defense, and I didn't play much defense, so I was usually a center growing up. <laughs> um, it came back to haunt me when I turned, you know, pro, and they said, "You got to learn how to yeah, play defense, play the not defense, but play in the D zone." <laughs> that was a big deal. You had to cross that other blue line. Yeah, huh? yeah, that was when I turned pro. Blue the dots, what? Yeah, exactly. I turned pro. They were like, "Hey, we got to introduce you to the D zone here." Oh, I never knew um, this was back So there. I played center, and you know, didn't growing up. I didn't, you know, our we had dads as coaches. I mean, and nowadays, a lot of seams associations have 
it's become a thing for former players to come back and coach. And I think that's pretty common in almost every community has former players that are, you know, overseeing at least a couple, you know, a few teams along the way. And we just had dads that were, you know, worked at 3M or worked at, you know, some accounting firm or whatever, and they didn't know anything about hockey really. So there wasn't a lot of coaching going on and which was good. You know, we weren't getting beat over the head with systems or right. the mistakes I was making. I just got to wheel and deal and skate all over the rink and take the puck and have fun. Um, so and then I, I ended up playing wing uh, in college and pro. So, But I could play either side. I was a right shot, but I ended up I could play either wing pretty well, which served me, served me well to be able to play on the off wing too. So you were always noted for your speed, though. So where would that come from? I you know, another really good friend of mine, and he did coach me as a Bantam and in high school. His name's Keith O'Brien. He was alumni of my high school, and then he was a teacher at, at, at our school, too, and we're, we're friends to this day. He said, Tommy, when you were born, God touched your legs. You know, he just said I was born with amazing legs. Um, I did have some pretty early uh, coaching from a guy named Jack Blatherwick, another oh, sure. real legend yeah. in, in the Minnesota hockey world and in the <clears throat> on that international he was he was herb brooks right hand skating guy and and physiologist he was part of the 1980 olympic um staff which was another huge impact on me we should talk about was the 80 olympics um but i just you know i took to it like fish to water i just skated a lot and then once i realized that it was a superpower kind of i really leaned into it i really did and i I'm a pretty humble guy most of the time. Um, I will brag about my skating. At at my peak, you know, in my kind of in my early NHL years, I was about as good as as any of the guys in the league. Yeah. There, Pavel Burry was pretty dynamic, and there was a few others. Stefan Riche, who I played with, was a really good skater. Russ Cortnall was really amazing and behind me came brett hedekin a minnesotan who's yep. a real good skater you know nowadays um there's guys like connor mcdavid and i don't even know where i would rank you know but anyway i was a i was a really strong skater yeah did you work on that as you saw yourself get better or thought you know you recognize that as a skill so was that a skill set that you continue to work on all the time then yeah i really did i really and i again like i said so i was playing it for the Gophers, and Jack Blatherick was our skating coach. And we had Mondays were dedicated to skating. And he would come out, and we would just do like an hour or maybe a little more of, of skating drills, edge work. And at some point, we would put on these 20-pound weight vests to weigh you down. And so when you're doing your cornering, you're putting more stress on your quads and your glutes and your edges. And, and then you would take them off. And then you could kind of do what's overspeed training, what's called overspeed, where you could feel like all of a sudden you're lighter and you could go faster or at least move your feet faster and go harder. Um, I would also do things like, and I tell kids this sometimes, like when, I'm, when I was doing a drill, if the drill required a quick start, I would, I would really emphasize my start. You know, some kids, when you start a drill, they blow the whistle and they just go, right? And they're probably going... 70, 80, 90%. I made sure I was going 100%. My first three steps, if it required, you know, sometimes you have to, there's timing, right? Like you can't play hockey going full speed all the time. That's why sometimes when I hear people say, oh, he's so fast, you know, about another player, it's like, well, speed is great, but how often are you going 
a hundred percent of your speed. Yeah. Not very often. I mean, you obviously I was able to use it at times to my advantage, but the game of hockey doesn't require you to go full speed all the time. So you have to be able to know how to use it. But if a drill required to start full speed, I, I decided, I figured out that, well, if I'm going to practice every day of the week and I'm going to do 10 drills a game. And every time I use that opportunity as a, as a, I guess a, a drill within a drill, to make myself a better starter and a faster skater, that's gonna that's gonna build up over time, and and that's how I thought about it. Awesome. Hey, I'm gonna give a shout out to a couple of our sponsors: Parker Insurance, multiple companies, multiple products, multiple savings. See Ryan Parker, who is a hockey coach himself in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, for all your insurance needs. And Market and Johnson, thanks to our friends at Market and Johnson, longtime supporters of the great game of hockey and our youth throughout the Chipwell Valley region. You ended up playing for the Gophers right out of high school. When did they start knocking on your door and showing interest? Um, well, back then they weren't recruiting quite as young as they are these days although the NCA recently pushed that back even which was a good good rule change um i think i was starting to hear from them my junior year and uh we ran into dean talifus there out front i didn't realize he was part of of central scouting but it was around that time too the summer of of going into my senior year i think that you know we would have summer leagues that we played in around here the twin city olympic league was one of them that college players played in and um pro scouts started coming around and i just remember back in those days they could give you a golf shirt or they would and so i had four or five golf shirts from different nhl teams which was kind of a cool thing right yeah. you come out you got your bag over your shoulder and some scouts been in the stands it'd be like being at the debuty league you know that type of you know environment not as many fans but um being scouted and and you know I, I i started getting letters you know weekly letters from schools keeping in touch we're going to come and see you we want to recruit you we hope you take a visit those kinds of things start happening so around my junior year in high school i think so when you were young and you started focusing on hockey who were some of your mentors and who are some of your heroes a great question um so I decided around the time I was 15 that I wanted to uh, play college hockey and play in the Olympics. And I didn't know, I wasn't thinking about pro at age 15, really. Um, but I was really impacted by the 80 Olympics, right? So I'm 13 years old and they win the gold medal. I'm a hockey, you know, fanatic. And so my heroes became players off that team uh neil broughton uh mark johnson uh other local you know some of the other local guys and then w there was actually like um mike ramsey was from minneapolis yeah, roosevelt, roosevelt minneapolis right so that was a school from the minneapolis conference that we played against and so guys like that um were that was kind of a hero too like a guy from my conference or my town yeah. Crosstown, uh, other side of town, uh, was was a gold medalist and then was playing in, in the NHL. Reed Larson was another big name local Roosevelt guy as well. Tom Hirsch for a little while there came out of Minneapolis Henry and was a Minneapolis guy. Um, 
the gopher players, a lot of the gophers, Steve Alseth, Aaron Broughton, you know, Neil's brother was a, was a, you know, God, Tim Harr was another guy. Uh, in the NHL, my first real recollection of a, of a kind of a hero was Guy Lafleur. I had a poster of Guy Lafleur. He was a right shot flying down the wing, <laughs> no helmet on hair, just flowing kind of thing. But Wayne Gretzky, uh, obviously was starting to come on the scene when I was about 15, 16. And then I ended up getting to meet him when I was 17 and then playing against him in the NHL. So so you obviously were inspired by the Olympics and you had an opportunity to be on that 1988 national team. Yep. Unfortunately, you were the last cut. Yep. How did that impact you? And you had been in with the Gophers at that time. So how did you keep your skills sharp for when you returned to the to the Gophers? Yeah, so, you know, it was a whole kind of a summertime tryout. And then you get named to the team. And so you have to unenroll from school. That was after my sophomore year. And we started in the fall with, I think, 30 players or so. And we went over to Europe and we're playing in Finland and Sweden and doing all these cool things, training in, in Veramaki, Finland, at a Finnish remote training center. Didn't even have, I don't even know if we had electricity. It seemed like at night we just, <laughs> as soon as the sun went down, we had to go to bed. Um, but, you know, it was a it was a thrill. We got to, we're a bunch of college kids back then, no NHLers, right? We're all in college and we're from Boston and Michigan and Minnesota primarily. And we're going around, in the fall, we played NHL teams during their exhibition season. I think we played nine NHL teams. And then as their season got going and colleges started, we started going around to college campuses. And so we would roll in and sometimes we'd stay in some of the campuses for two days. And then we'd come back to Minnesota and maybe stay for a couple of weeks. And we'd go out and play some games. And we went to stay in Colorado Springs. And and really, it was it was fun. I wasn't performing particularly well most of the time and as we got closer and closer to the olympic games they had already cut a couple players and we were getting down to you know like if you've seen miracle oh, a million times you yeah. know it's just like it was kind of just like that there's two guys that gotta go and i was squeezing oh. my stick and it was a, it was a dream that i really wanted and and i could see it coming and uh and which made it worse and then uh you know the the day came and got the call and had to go see coach Peterson. And it, it, it was not, he had actually coached at Southwest, not for me. Yeah. He was yeah. gone on the 84 Olympic team before I got to Southwest, but he had a spot in his heart for Minneapolis guys. And, you know, he considered me a, a good kid, but he had to cut me cause I hadn't performed, which was pretty sad, but how it affected me was I came back. So I'm cut in February I could have actually joined the Gophers, or maybe it was late January. Anyway, I could have joined the Gophers, burned a year of eligibility, and jumped back on the team, which some of the other Olympians did because they were going to turn pro anyway or something. I had aspirations of coming back for another year, and I just didn't want to burn a year. And frankly, Doug Woog didn't beg me to come back. You know, Dave Snugrud was another one that could have come back. He didn't come back either. We sat out that year. And came back for the next year, eighty-eight, eighty-nine. I staying in shape and all that was wasn't a big deal because I was only off the ice from you know February to March or whatever it was, sure, and then yeah. kind of got back into training. But it really motivated me to come back and prove that 
I could still be on track. I'd been drafted in the first round, and you know, by that time I'm 21 years old, and I want to make it to the NHL. First, I want to win a national championship, but I was plenty motivated by getting cut. So you're drafted in the first round by the Canadians, okay, 16th overall pick. You said you had a poster of Guy Lafleur on your wall. Did you have any opportunity to ever meet him in your time? You know, he was still playing a bit. I don't. I never met him. I don't think uh, off the ice, but he came out of retirement, and I got to play against him. So that was pretty cool. Very cool. Uh, we play. He was playing for Quebec when I was playing for Montreal, which is a huge rivalry at the time. Anyway, people won't really realize how big it is, but it'd be like if Minneapolis and St. Paul had (laughs) pro teams, you know, and, and up in French, up in Quebec and French Canada, they're completely bananas for hockey and passionate. And one city has to think they're better than the other city. And Quebec was like the little brother, but they had Guy Lafleur and, and, and at the time they had Joe Sackick and some other you know, pretty big names. But anyway, I got to play against him. Um, but yeah, playing in Montreal was uh, was both a thrill and a and a sort of terrifying <laughs> situation. You know, I'm an American college player, first round pick, tons of pressure on me. And uh, again, that was that was tough. Uh, you know, I was playing for a hard nosed kind of French speaking coach and Pat Burns, and the media has a way of absolutely you know, driving a, a a wedge between the English players and the French players if they want, because the French media likes to promote the French players and yep. English likes to promote the English, and they all are fighting for stories. And there's two newspapers, two radios, two TVs locally, and then there's national coverage. So when they open the doors after practice, there's like 15 people roll in and there's microphones everywhere and they're all running around trying to get a story. So it gets pretty intense. A lot of pressure for you guys. Yeah. Let's go back a little bit uh, to high school. You were the inaugural winner of the Mr. Hockey Award in the state of Minnesota. Yeah. What did that mean to you? And uh, what did it mean to your coaching team? Yeah, you know, it was pretty neat. When you're the first, it's, I mean, it's neat to be the first. And it's at the time, it's become more meaningful now i think down the road but at the time you don't really have anything to compare it to right because it hasn't ever it hasn't been a ongoing historic thing but um being recognized as the best high school player in minnesota was a really was a really neat um honor and i always tell people that her brooks presented me with the trophy or the award which was pretty cool he was the guest speaker and also, um, John Mariucci was at the head table as a honored guest. And another guy named Larry Ross. People might not know who Larry Ross is, but he was a international, international Falls yeah. um, Olympic goalie, longtime high school coach, legendary Minnesota hockey guy. So those two, you know, those two guys are sitting at the table. Herb Brooks is presenting it. At the time, we only had five finalists at the that first year. Now there's ten finalists, but. Uh, it was pretty neat. It was a. It's a long time ago, but it was pretty neat. And I, <laughs> you know, but these days I feel a little connection to any Mister Hockey winner, and you know, we'll be at golf outings, and a lot of them have been golfers, and a lot of them have been pro players, and and there's as many players that didn't win it that have gone on to be great players too. It's it's hard to name one player, and and certain times that you know they 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 name the player who seems to be projected to be the best NHL player. He may not even be the guy that had the best 
high school season or the best high school career. So there's a lot of there's probably a lot of debate available for who should win it. But you were sitting amongst legends when that was occurring, and keeping in mind that this is for the best high school hockey player, you know, however you want to uh, encompass that, but. Now you're going directly from high school to college. What was the difference in speed and skill when you made that jump? Well, you know, we talked a little bit about my skating. My skating was up to par. And by that time I had grown a little, probably grow, I'm much bigger than my, taller than my parents. And so I, I, I entered college at about six feet, I think 180. Solid. And I could skate. So I was big enough and sure. fast enough, yeah. mm-hmm. but I was not prepared for the adversity and the level of competition and the opponents. And it just was, they were fast too, right? And they were, they were three steps ahead of me as far as um, seeing the game at that pace. You know, I was used to playing against um, a lot lower level of competition. And so, you know, I didn't play your juniors. That would have helped me a lot. I could have used a little adversity um, because I started going through slumps and I wouldn't even get a shot on net, you know, and I was used to scoring goals. (laughs) And uh, Doug Woog was not very pleased about it either. You know, everyone just assumed I was going to step right in and put me on a line with Pat Micheletti and Corey Millen or whatever, and uh, and he's going to be world famous. And, and And that didn't happen, and so... Early in my freshman year, again, the pressure started mounting, and that's when I started to learn to have to deal with uh, pressure and adversity. And there was some there were some dark dark days after games, and and I got left home. I got scratched from a weekend, I think, or two, which felt sort of unheard of, you know, like first round pick, high Mister Hockey, yeah, and now. Doug Woog's not even taking him to Northern Michigan. So that was kind of a blow, right? So I'm sitting at home that weekend just kind of pondering how I've ended up in this spot. But, you know, those are the those are the trials and tribulations that almost everyone goes through at some point, and that just happened to be when I started to go through it. I hadn't gone through anything like that until then. Well, you grew from it, obviously, you know, and you had a very successful pro career, but... I want to go back to the the old WCHA. Yeah, you, know, you had some. I, I'm not going to say hatred, but it's oh, yeah. probably pretty close to that. Oh with, yeah, with a lot of those teams, and you had to be up for every single weekend because everybody was shooting for the Gophers, right? Yeah. Well, we were the we were primarily all Minnesota kids, right? So we're Americans, and a lot of other teams like you know Duluth had a fair amount of Canadians. They were starting to be more Minnesotans. North Dakota heavy Canadians, heavy rivalry. Um, you know, you go down to Madison, heavy rivalry that just was, and you know, just it, back then there was a lot of physicality. There was a lot of hitting. Um, there would be some sort of fights, you know, we go up to North Dakota and the, the, the student section would hold up the newspapers. Like they didn't, when they were announcing you, you'd come out <laughs> on the announcing under the blue line, the announcing lineup and they'd hold up the newspapers cause they were ignoring you. And then when they'd say their name. They'd all in unison put the paper down. And they'd say, "Who's he? He sucks." <laughs> <laughs> Who's he? He sucks. And actually, they threw a sh blank blank on the <laughs> end of it. But 
then then you'd get out there and then when they got done with that once we were all out there they'd throw dead gophers they'd 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 kill them over the summer and they'd freeze them and then they'd sneak them into the rink this isn't you know this isn't the the new ralph this is the old the old building which was a barn and it was just it was just so chaotic but yeah they'd be throwing dead gophers and i think my last year I heard a huge thunk and I turned around and someone had like snuck like a woodchuck or something. It was, it was even bigger, you know? So it was crazy. So I mean, were you guys just laughing at this? Oh me? yeah. We laugh at it. And then, then, you know, the game would start and it was buckle up fellas. Right. Cause it was, yeah, it, yeah. it was on and my sophomore year, they were really good. They won the national championship. They had Tony Herkus and Bobby Joyce and all these guys and Eddie Belfour, you know, Long-time goalie in the NHL was in that. Um, but when I came back after the Olympic year, we they had graduated all those guys, and we, we beat up on North Dakota pretty good by then. I just have to sneak that in there. There you go. Good jab for the <laughs> North Dakota folks. Yeah. Great stories. <laughs> oh, their fans the were awesome. Job. Yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. Did you see some guy hulking that over the <laughs> Yeah. Well, just well, you wondering know, how big the coat had to be to get it in. Uh, I'm pretty sure he came through the Zamboni door. with It was in a bucket, probably. I don't think he had to sneak it in. All right, we're going to give a shout-out to Northwoods Therapy, who takes pride in being your choice for physical therapy in the Chippewa Valley since 1981. Northwoods Physical Therapy is a clinic where you can receive the care you deserve and are treated like family place that Mogi and I have both visited in the past. Yes, we have. And then also the Valley Sports Academy is a brand new 116,000 square foot state-of-the-art sports training facility located in the Chippewa Valley featuring many sports. They are devoted to helping athletes reach their next level utilizing tools like their skating treadmill, rapid shot, rapid hand, synthetic ice shooting, and 100% real ice training rink and high-level coaching staff. Check them out at uh, excuse me at Valley Sports Academy. You know, go ahead, Mo. Also, Tom. So you won the Stanley Cup with the Devils in 1995, your sixth year as a professional hockey player, and then you went on. You only made the playoffs one more time in your career, and you were beaten in the first round. So tell our listeners how hard is it, and what does it take to win the Stanley Cup? Yeah, it's. Uh it's a thrill of a lifetime to win it. Uh, getting there is, is, is hard. Um, I got to New Jersey from Montreal and in the fall of 91 for the 91, 92 season. And that year, um, we were middle of the pack. We were kind of good, but not great. And Tommy McVie was our coach, old, old school coach. And he was the guy that said, I'm going to make a player out of you. We just got to show you the D zone or something. You know, you <laughs> teach you how to play defense. He said, you're pretty good offensively, but if you're going to play in the NHL, you got to play better defense. So anyway, um, but that was fun. And then they let Tommy go that year and they brought in Herb Brooks the next year. So now I had Herb Brooks and that was pretty exciting for me. And now I'm going to get to play for Herb Brooks, not just, you know, have him hand a trophy to me. Um, but that didn't go as swimmingly as I thought it would. He was a tough, tough bugger, and um, he was kind of hard on me. He challenged me, and so I was in and out of the lineup a little bit with him, which surprised me. I thought, I'll do anything for this guy. And um, But he challenged me and made things hard and wanted to see if he could push me. So um, got through that year, and then he wasn't, I don't think, seeing eye to eye with 
management all the time. You know, he liked to do things the way he believed in it, which is fine and and everything. But you know, I remember he came in and and he he kind of explained to, to us that you know this league is its north south league. Players go up and down the wing. They don't really change lanes. And obviously, he had had some success in the Olympics, and he thought where the game was going, which he was right. Yep. He just was about ten years It'll too early. Time. Yep. Um, he comes in. He says, "Well, everyone's going north and south. We're going to go east and west." And so, a lot of the guys who were making their living going north and south—that's like, you know, you're in your job, and a new boss comes in and kind of moves your cheese or whatever they say kind of disrupts how you're doing things and they don't buy in because they're thinking i i don't i'm not comfortable zigging and zagging and leaving my right wing to go play on the left wing i do just fine going up and down my wing so um that's where herb had a hard time you know sort of assimilating into the culture of of the nhl and it really wasn't his fault but he was also had so much conviction and again he was right he just was I mean, he would be wonderful probably, you know, starting 10 years ago or whatever. Yeah. But um, then so he got let go. Or, no, he might. I ran into him in the summer. He said, I, I quit. I quit. I'm not working for that guy. And I'm not I don't need the money that bad that I'm going to compromise how I do things kind of thing. That's how he was, which is great. But Jacques Lemaire shows up with um, Larry Robinson, like two Montreal legends. Absolutely. Between the two of them, they had over. 15 Stanley Cups, right? And so they immediately had credibility. In the meantime, we had added players like Randy McKay, who I guess has been on this He's podcast. He's been on our podcast, yep. Um, more importantly, Scott Stevens was our captain, and he came up, and I mean, he came to the team and just immediately took over as a leader. An absolute fearless, amazing, you know, battle, com, you know competitive uh, guy. Coming up through the ranks, we had Martin Brodeur, we had Niedermeyer, we had Bill Guerin, we had Brian Rolston, um, all these young guys that no one had really heard of yet, but they were pretty freaking good. And then, Future <laughs> Hall of Famers. Yeah. And then I was playing with Bob Carpenter, and we were kind of veteran guys, and we became really good penalty killers. So everything came together, right? And we had the right culture. And if you want to know what it takes to win a championship, it's culture. You certainly need the right talent and ability, and and you need to have your bases covered there. But if your culture's you know toxic, and if people aren't on the same page, or there's jealousy about ice time, you know, because one thing Jacques and Jacques did was, you know, we had this trap system, which was kind of a swear word because they felt it was too boring. We were reserved sitting back, and it really wasn't the case. We just didn't forecheck hard. We created a turnover in the neutral zone and would counterattack, and it was brilliant because it wasn't as much hard work. Because we had a red line, we could force the team to have to make a pass. That's right. The red line was still in place. Still play in then. place. Yep. So they would, if, you, if you wedged them a certain way and they were going to you, – you, you didn't let them get to the red line, yep. so they either had to ice it which they didn't want to do because then they're back in their zone, right? And the rules today are the same way. They've created rules so that icing is you're penalized, right, for it and, and more so. Flipping in the puck out, you're penalized. There's all these things you could do, but back then, you know, we could we could force them to make one more pass before the red line, and we knew where their options were, and we usually would intercept it and go the other way. And, you know, Jacques Lemaire would say, would you guys rather, like, dump it in and then have to go dig it out below the goal line knowing you still have to get it out to the front of the net to get it in the net, or should we just let them skate out and we'll 
make them turn it over, and then we can just skate in and shoot and score. I'm like, Plan B sounds less work. Plan B sounds pretty good. Plan B sounds real good. Yeah, and when when we when when we did make a mistake or the other team was good, we had Marty Brodeur and Scott Stevens and Scott Niedemeyer and all these guys back there. So um, we had all the we had all the pieces in place, but we really had each guy had a role. Each guy knew what his job was. Each guy enjoyed and liked his job. The coaches respected the players. The players respected the players, and the players respected the coaches. So we had this this little triad, or you know, of 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 a good thing going between sort of roles and and respect and and skill and and competitiveness. And we were just kind of a we were just on a roll. Awesome. Yeah, it was. It, well, I got to tell you, from a fan standpoint, it was enjoyable to watch those years uh, of you guys playing hockey with the Devils. Now, let's talk about the day you win the Cup. What was that like being on the ice, you know, when the final buzzer goes off and, you know, you guys are celebrating and then eventually Lord Stanley comes out on the ice? What's that feeling like? Yeah, um, we won in four straight, so it happened kind of fast you know i remember after three games we were having a morning skate that maybe the day of the fourth game and we were missing pucks and we felt apparently we were a little uptight and we were a little quiet because i think everyone in their head was like man we might win this thing tonight but it also was putting a little bit of pressure on us and coach uh lamar called us in you know 10 minutes in he's like guys it feels a little different out here like it's a little too quiet you're a little uptight you're missing passes. He's like, I don't know what's going on. He said, but do you really think the Red Wings are going to win the next four games? They're not. So relax. Yeah. And we relaxed and we went out and we had a you know great game and we won. And yeah, so all of a sudden you're like, I was on the ice when the clock was oh, counting down. Oh, cool. So like, you know, I mean, we all go to celebrate, but I'm out there looking up and chasing the puck and kind of looking at the clock and, you, the crowd is obviously counting it down, and and then it just you just you can't believe it. You're like in this surreal land, right? And then, and then as they start to bring the cup out, I at some point I just remember thinking, I've seen, you know, Gordy Howe, Bobby Orr, Mario Lemieux, Wayne Gretzky, lift this thing over their head. Like I've been watching this for my whole life, yeah. and I'm about to do it. Like it's unbelievable. You can't believe it. Yeah. And it's not just something that you shoot for that year, right? I mean, as soon as you're a pro, that's your goal. But even when you're a kid, you're like you hear, you know, kids will play ball hockey in the driveway or the street or down at the park, and you're you're kind of pretending you're maybe in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And so, it was really it was it was amazing, you know. And and for me, having uh, I guess having gotten cut from the Olympic team. Lost the national championship in overtime in 89 in St. Paul. That was a tough one, which we didn't talk about. Yeah, Rob Stauber. Um, yeah. Your goalie. Yeah, yeah Rob Stauber was that. great, but we lost to Harvard. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, after some after some close but not quite, you know, close but no cigars, uh, to win that one was like kind of the biggest one. So pretty special feeling. Family was all there. Uh and then the celebrations, the celebrating that you get to do with your teammates, like the, the sense of accomplishment was incredible. And then everywhere you go with the cup is just like you walk into a bar or a restaurant or down the street or whatever. And it's 
everyone knows what the Stanley Cup is pretty much. And, and then they get to see it and touch it. And you start to look at the names and the years and when Bobby Orr's name is on it or Wayne Gretzky's or Gordie Howe's or, you know, any of those Montreal teams. So it's, it's unbelievable. So did, did you guys get to have a day with the yeah, cup back then? Yeah, so I actually got lucky because Neil Broughton had it before me, and he was over in River Falls. And if you know Neil, he's pretty pretty, you know, low level on, on you know, he's just under the radar guy kind of. And so he had a little barbecue with it, and I think he just had some friends over for, you know, a picnic or something. And, and uh, it must have been on like a Saturday or a Sunday and the guy calls me up and he said, uh, hey, Neil's, Neil's done with the cup. He's like, do you want me to, I can jump in the car. He goes, I rented a car. I was planning on driving over tomorrow because I can just come in tonight. I said, damn right, you should get over here. <laughs> like, you got I, bonus time. I get extra time with it. Hey, yeah. Yeah. So, Rent the Corvette, get here quicker. <laughs> yeah, so I think I got it You know, the day before I was supposed to have it. And uh, I got it probably at about five o'clock in the afternoon. And so maybe even earlier, three o'clock and started, I'm like, I, I didn't plan for this, but let's just start going to some bars and restaurants that I hang out at. So we went and had lunch at one of the downtown bars. And then um, my parents used to watch our games at a local sports bar near our house called Bunny's because we didn't have satellite back then, but bars had satellite TV. So you could watch New Jersey Devil games if you went to a sports bar that had satellite TV. And uh, the owner there, had Gary had asked me, like, hey, if you could ever bring that thing to my bar, that would be awesome. <laughs> and before this day, I had told him, I'm like, I don't know, Gary. I got, like, I'm supposed to go on the radio, and then I've got an event for friends and family and apparently all of their friends and family and cousins. Um, at the Calhoun Beach Club, and then at night I'm going to take it to the Loon Cafe, and we're going to, you know, close the bar down and have a private party and all that. So I don't know about, and then I get this bonus day, and so I called him and I said, Gary, I I can be at your bar in like 45 minutes. He was like, awesome. So he got his two kids there, and we rolled in, and it was a Wednesday night, and there was some softball leagues and people that were just in there on a regular Wednesday night, and they couldn't, they couldn't understand why the stanley cup was in the bar that night on a you know unannounced or anything so some really cool memories about it and then i had some big parties you know with it not like they do today i mean these guys today they rent helicopters and go to the top of islands or whatever they do and rent islands and have rock bands and all this stuff but we had good friends and family i took it to the bloomington ice garden i took it on uh k fan radio and stuff like that Nice. So you shared it with the with the comic. Yeah, folk? you always share it with yeah. people. Always share it with people. Much appreciated, I'm sure. How much to you? How heavy did that cup feel to you when you lifted it? Was it was it a featherweight or was it like a million pounds? You know, it was. It, it's a little bit in between. It wasn't that heavy though. It weighs 34 pounds. If if you want to know, um, it's a it was a a little awkward because you know holding something kind of that heavy and that big high up over your head. Um, and you're so excited, and you're on skates, and, and you're not thinking clearly, so um, you're just a little wobbly. And and looking up, it's weird, right? If you want to look up at it and kiss it, you're, now you're in like in this position that you've never really been in on the ice before, because you're always bent over, you know, leaning on your stick, handling a puck, and now you're looking up in the rafters with this 34 pound 
pretty big trophy over your head and you're all of a sudden you can't you're a little wobbly but um it, it it's definitely you're full of adrenaline so it doesn't feel too heavy it goes up pretty easy so but there's sticks there's helmets there's yeah. gloves there uh t- tv cables yeah. all over i'm surprised yeah. guys don't go down more well often, really i mean i if you saw any social media this past spring i mean right after the game they came in a guy tripped and it fell yeah, on the ice it, and he yeah. dinged it then <laughs> and then there was another incident in a bar where i think one of the players had been overserved and he put it over his head and he tipped over too so yeah, backwards if i'm not mistaken yeah, i don't know if they got damaged then you know and i don't know if he was any worse for the wear but eh, it happens when you win the cup yeah well <laughs> it yeah certainly does. go ahead Mo. so tom you had an opportunity to represent our country in at 86 at the world junior championships and in 1996 in the world in the world championships you won bronze medals both times how cool was it to pull on that usa jersey Right. Well, you know, as I told you, I was one of my dreams was to be on the Olympic team, um, which didn't come true. So, to, any time to be able to go back and represent your country and pull on that jersey, it it, it resembled or it, it was a some sort of semblance of of that. You're playing for your country, you're overseas, you're playing with a bunch of other Americans from around the country. You know, really fun, really great experiences. The the good story about the World Junior one in '86. So that was a. That was during my freshman year, so which I was struggling. That was a nice little escape for me to get off get off campus and and go up to. Um, we played it in out on London, Ontario, outside Toronto, and things like that. But winning the bronze, so that was in '86. That was the first medal that a U.S. team had won since the '80 Olympics. Wow! So since you know they won in '80, and then. After that, they didn't win any medal in 84 for the Olympics. And any of those years, they weren't winning world championships and they weren't winning junior, world juniors. And so when we won that, that was a pretty pretty cool thing to pull a bronze medal over and come home with a bronze, which I don't think we were really expected to. But we had guys like, you know, Brian Leach and Mike Richter from Wisconsin and Ranheim and all kinds of guys, Craig Janney and Scott Young, and I'm, I'm going to miss some of the other great American players that were on that team. But um, that was that was a, that was cool. And then the World Championships w- was going on when I was in the in the NHL, and I actually played on four of those teams. Only won a bronze once, but anytime they, my wife and I, my now wife, we didn't have kids, you know. And and if I wasn't going to be in the playoffs, um, and Team USA said, "Hey, do you want to go to Austria?" and play in the tournament sign me up okay <laughs> sign me up and, and you know and we and and the, i went to the first one i went to was in stockholm sweden my senior year of college and good story about that was i roomed with tom curvers who's now since passed away i was a going to be a rookie in the nhl he was a minnesotan and a veteran he had played in montreal for a few years and now he was i think in new jersey at the time and he treated me like a little brother and he was mentoring me and you know we were in Stockholm, which was really cool. And I got over there as a college player really early, so I got to play in a few games. But then, as teams lose in the playoffs in the NHL, they start adding veteran NHL guys. So I ended up getting um, benched eventually, or scratched, I should say. I wasn't benched, but I stayed over there still for you know hanging out with these NHLers and in Sweden. And I got I did get to play against the Red Army team, and I scored a goal. So that's oh, wow. one of my nice. highlights of my career was playing against the old Red Army team in 1989. They were still 
the you know behind the iron curtain and yeah. and i got i scored a i got a rebound and scored a goal so i scored against the red army team which is you know kind of a cool thing to say yeah very cool kind of like reliving the 80 olympics getting oh, that goal there you yeah. go yeah you know you mentioned uh rookie season uh in the nhl any initiations you had to go oh, through boy yeah um went through them in college too that which was um similar but let's see so in what happened in Montreal was, unfortunately, a French kid went first, Stéphane Lebeau. And all, most of the Americans, like Chris Chelios, who's a pretty wild guy at the time, he's, you know, he's had an amazing Hall of Fame career, and he's a great captain and loved Chelly. Um, but he was, he was a wild guy. Like, he was crazy coming out of Wisconsin still. And so there was a few Americans on the team, and those, they went after this LeBeau. They were going to get him good, right? And then so I went second, and well, guess what happens? Like, I'm the American, and now the Canadian, French yeah. and Canadian guys are going to fix my wagon because, yeah. and, and, you know, the veterans, they can't, there's not much they can do about it. They're like, oh, if those guys are going to do that, we'll just have to get the American. But so we got blindfolded. And in, in Montreal, they shaved, they shaved our heads, and then they uh, spray-painted our bodies. I don't know if my body got shaved, but, but they spray-painted us. And the worst part was they, they'd spray-paint your nipples, and so you had to use the alcohol pads for a while. And that was the whole point. Like the whole point is they want you to get like this really raw, sore skin. Um, and the press was waiting for us when we came out. I think so. Our our hairs looked terrible. They they didn't do a good job shaving us, right? They they kind of shaved around the blindfold. <laughs> so you had like a kind of a bowl cut thing. And be and before you could get to the barber, the you know the media was aware that it was going on that day and. You know, and then to make it worse, now that you know, then they get you for a a meal later down the road too. You got to be the rookie dinner. Oh sure. So you take the whole team out, and the rookies have to split the tab, and that's gotten a lot worse these days, I think. But even then, you know, it's a that's a painful tab to pay. I can imagine, especially as a rookie. (laughs) Yeah, you're not getting paid that much, and those guys are ordering Dom Perignon. Yeah. So you played for seven teams in your NHL career. You played for the Canadians, the Devils, the Senators, the Islanders, the Capitals, the Flames, and the Penguins. Which stop was your favorite? I, have, I mean, obviously I have to say I don't have to, but I would say New Jersey. Um, I was there the longest. Um, I played a significant role there. We won a championship. Um, I met my now wife there. She's from New Jersey, so... Meeting her was was helpful in that when I first got to New Jersey, I wasn't crazy about um, how urban it was and, you know, turnpikes and parkways and populated. And there's just kind of felt craziness compared to Minneapolis. Um, But she showed me the Jersey Shore, met great people outside of of, uh, hockey, you know, and, and as I was there longer, great teammates, Ken Danko, Johnny McClain. Um, Bruce Driver, Bobby Carpenter, you know, these guys, we start going out to restaurants and it's kind of funny, you know, when the show, the Sopranos came out, I'm watching it for a while. And all of a sudden I go, I think I know some of these guys. Like (laughs) when you're in New Jersey, 
And that's where it was shot. You know, uh-huh. first of all, I was watching it, and they're like, I'm like, I know that restaurant, or I know that neighborhood, because I recognize it. I used to drive down that street. And, uh, you know, we'd drive by the Bada Bing, which was near the rink. But, um, you you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but you're kind of bumping into these guys. Would, and they were great, but they probably were kind of those bounce around Joey Bag of Donuts type of guys. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So uh, were you a Bruce Springsteen fan at all, him being from yeah. New Jersey? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, seeing him play in New Jersey, and yeah, I like I like his music. Um, and and actually, being out there when I was playing for the Islanders, got to see Billy Joel play out on the island. Nice. And he's from Long Island, and yep. so that was a big deal. Um, you know, probably saw Bon Jovi play in New Jersey, another Jersey guy. Yep. So um, yeah, you, you get to do some fun things like that with some of the the music that that comes rolling through town out there. There's a lot of action going on in, in New Jersey, right? Where the, where the team plays because you're, you're right across from Manhattan. Um, you know, you can get down to Philly, you can get out to some mountains if you want to, you can go down to the shore and, and be at the beach and the ocean. And so, um, there's, there's a lot of cool things. So, you know, I didn't mention any of the other teams. I really liked playing, just playing in the NHL was great playing in Canadian cities is um is you know hyper intensive uh, high focus but ottawa was a great city made some great friends there um you know we weren't a great team but we were getting better and we did get them into the playoffs that was the next time i was in the playoffs and i was proud of that accomplishment because they hadn't been very good i got traded from new jersey to ottawa that was a tough trade going from a stanley cup team to the worst team um, but two years later, we cracked the code and got into the playoffs, and the fans really appreciated that. Traveling across Canada, playing in Calgary, playing in you know Edmonton, playing in Vancouver, um, is always was fun to do. And and playing in Pittsburgh, um, Herb Brooks was my coach. I ended up getting hurt right when he came in. I wasn't playing much. He came in, and at that time, he came to me and he said, "You know what? You've been not. You've been getting screwed. I'm going to give you a chance to play." which was awesome. Then I hurt my shoulder and then my dad got sick. Uh, he was diagnosed with cancer and I elected to leave the team. That was the last time I played in the NHL. Uh, this would have been in about February. They gave him three months to live. And so I decided to head home and be around my mom and just, it was at the end of my career. And so that's kind of how that wound down. Uh, you chose to do the right thing. I that's believe, for sure. I believe that too. Yeah. We talked about uh, the Hall of Famers that you either played with or against. Yeah. Who was your toughest competitor on the ice? Oh, well, I mean, it was tough playing against Mario Lemieux because he was so damn good. Um, you know, and Yager was hard to handle. Um, a little more on the and, – and Sackick and Iserman. Um, a little more on the gritty, tough side that was, you know – was Mark Messier, oh, uh, tough beast. Yeah. beast of a guy and didn't, you know, no nonsense. And, and I played at a time where like, if you, you know, if you stepped over the line with anyone, they, they, they're going to fight you or cross check you in the throat or slash you on the ankle or the wrist or something, something was happening, right? Yeah. Like, um, those days are gone now because, you know, you get penalized, and then and back then you didn't. There wasn't necessarily going to be a penalty. Like if the ref saw 
Mark Messier, if I if I did something annoying to a veteran or or a Hall of Famer, um, and wasn't going to back it up or whatever, the ref would say, "Okay, well, I'm going to let him slash him." Because you know, you had it coming anyway, right? Yeah, you got it coming, or you got to <laughs> learn the ropes in this league or whatever. Nowadays, you know, if you start the fight, you get the extra penalty minutes, right? If you're a third man in, that's a big no-no. Back then, it was common occurrence, right? Like if oh, if, yeah. if if a guy got the upper hand on another guy or if, or if somehow a fight started between sort of a guy who was more of a heavyweight tough guy versus a middleweight not so tough guy someone else would step in and and finish it for yeah. the for the guy losing or for the lightweight guy like there was very little i mean it was there was codes right that's how that's how the league was policed it was policed on the ice by unwritten rules and so there was a lot of tough customers out there, you know. And so I could rattle off all kinds of guys, you know. Dale Hunter was 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 a hard guy to play against. He was tough. You want to talk about tough, you know. I mean, then there was fighters like Tony Twist and Bob Probert and Dave Brown and I mean, on and on. I you know these guys were really tough. Yeah, I didn't go near those guys. Yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> All right, probably like, why you're alive today. <laughs> yeah, you just and you know, and they knew they were like you're. They knew I wasn't going to fight them, and I knew I wasn't going to fight them, and so that was sort of the unwritten rule. But I also couldn't slash them or cross check them in a pile up or anything, and it just was how it was, right? And if I if I felt I was getting abused and I could take the guy on, I would fight him. I didn't fight a lot, but every now and then, you. I, here's a pretty good story. My my rookie year, I'm going out on the ice in the first period and several shifts, and every time we get to the front of the net, I'm getting worked over. And I'm just thinking, well, this is the NHL, and we're at Montreal, we're playing Boston. And if I go to the front of the net, I should expect I'm probably going to get cross-checked in the back or I'm going to get mugged somehow or a stinky glove in the face, something, right? It's normal. But... Apparently, it was a little excessive. It was getting worse and worse. And finally, I think it was Brian Scrudlin from Montreal. He's a veteran guy. He comes down and he makes the, tells the guy next to me to scoot over. And he sits down to me and he says, hey, kid, he said, if you take it like that now, you'll take it your whole career. You got to go do something. And I had never been in a fight. I knew I was going to have to fight at some point. But I thought it would kind of happen naturally. And I really wasn't looking for it. But when the guy comes down and says, hey, almost like you're kind of making us look bad. Yeah. Got to fight for yourself. You got to fight for yourself because we don't, he's not doing it to us. And we don't, you're big, you're a big boy now. You can go take care of yourself. So next time I went on the ice, I went to the front of the net. And as soon as I felt someone on my back, I turned around and kind of stared at him. And he said, you ready? I said, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Off come the gloves. Off come the gloves. And. I didn't really know. I mean, you've been in a couple street fights, but not many. So it was really kind of clamped down, make sure I didn't get hit with a haymaker. And Do you, you know. remember who that first opponent was that you dropped gloves with? Uh, yes. Um, I was thinking of his name while I was telling the story because I thought it might come up. Um, Stefan Kintel. Pretty tough defenseman. And it, a couple years ago, he was in charge of uh, – like discipline for the NHL. He might still have a role with them. But anyway, you know, I grabbed onto him and held his arms as much as I could and no blood, no no injuries. And he, in fact, like, I think he tapped me on the pants and said, good job, good job, bud. Something like that, you know, like, oh, I and those guys, those fighters, they want to get in a fight. 
Like it looks good on for him. Just these guys that fight a lot. I mean, it was crazy, but they wanted to get in fights because that was their job. And yeah. if if they don't get their name on the score sheet with five minutes, you know, because they're not going to score, they're not going to get an assist. They might not get a lot of shifts. But when they go out there back then, if they didn't get in a fight or smoke someone with a hit, the coaching staff or the general managers would look at it and, and say, like, well, he doesn't want it bad enough or he's what's he good for? He's not If he's not going to hit someone or hurt someone or fight them, he's no good to me. Like, that's that's a bad it's a bad place to be for those guys a lot of times, and that's why you hear some of the, the mental health issues. Um, it was not an easy job for those guys yeah. to live that life. Yeah, I heard a lot of them <clears throat> struggle with anxiety. I mean, they knew every night going in. Right. I mean, a goal scorer, it's hard enough for them, but knowing that you're going to have to do, you know, that toe-to-toe, hand-to-hand combat, that's right. got to be tough on a with, guy. With a really tough customer. Right. And the, oh, man. Subsequent to the NHL, uh, you worked with the St. Cloud Norseman for a while, or maybe still are there in the Nall. What are you up to now? What What are the plans? What's your future? Yeah, um, I was I was with the the Norseman for about a year and a half. Um, I resigned uh, after that first season, which was last se- last season, not this past season, the one before. So I, this past season, I was not part of them, but I remain close with uh, Corey Millen and the owner Chris Canavati. Um, occasionally, Corey will call me for. I, you know, some background on a player that I might know in the city or can I find something out? Um, I go to their, I go to some of their games, I go to their camps. So I'm, I'm still on good terms and, and kind of helping when I can, if you will. Um, that being said, I also helped one of the assistant coaches um, get uh, hired in Chippewa. So Casey Mignon is the head coach in Chippewa. Uh-huh. I've stayed close with with him and he leans on me too so i've been sort of an unpaid consultant um <laughs> these guys will laugh they'll be like he hasn't done crap for me but <laughs> we're, we're, we're gonna head over to chippewa after yeah this interview. so i'm just gonna <laughs> talk to casey i'm just gonna i'm just gonna say it that way but no you know reality of it was is also during that time um my son was playing juniors he had been out in the british columbia hockey league and then he played in the north american league he played for st cloud the year i was there um it worked out well, I actually encouraged him to go play in New Mexico because I were friends with the owner there too. But Brett decided that he wanted to stay. He knew some of the players and and felt more comfortable playing in St. Cloud or wanted to play in St. Cloud. I was a little concerned because his dad was at the helm of the team, but coaching staff was like, "No, he's one of the best, you know, O ones, and he's coming down from the USHL, and he's probably going to be, you know." one of our best players and he ended up being our leading scorer. So it wasn't a nepotism thing, which, nice. which made me feel good. Yeah. And at the same time, our daughter was playing high school hockey. She's now graduated. She's playing college hockey. So I've been really kind of helping them get recruited and overseeing that process and kind of involved with that and then launching them into college. Uh, I helped some of the other players on the St. Cloud Norseman get kind of recruited or mentored them through their season last year. I, I might be overstating that a little bit too, but but I'm sure there's a few players. If you asked him, they'd say he he really helped me a lot. So I've been doing that. Um, I'm also been um, sort of tinkering and building a platform that uh, will be designed to help um, players and their parents um, navigate that that hockey journey from age 15 to 19 
Um, there's just a lot of people out there that would, you know, if you're in Minnesota or just happen to have a friend in the hockey business, uh, it's really helpful because you need someone to kind of guide you and mentor you on what to do, how to do it, how to think about it a little bit. You know, these players are 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. And sometimes in Minnesota, they're, they're navigating high school and that's easy because it's just plain and simple and it's kind of laid out for them. But then all of a sudden they find themselves their junior or senior year and they're thinking that they want to go on and play college hockey. Well, there's a whole world of, of juniors that they have to go through to get there. And, and even in Minnesota, a lot of parents don't fully understand because you've been growing up in association hockey. Sure. Now, the rest of the country, AAA hockey, club hockey, it's a different system. And they're a little bit more familiar with the path to get to juniors, to get to college hockey, whether it's Division One or Division Three, or even club hockey, maybe. But um, a lot of these people from around the country, the game's grown a lot, so their kids play, but their parents don't have a lot of experience and understanding, and it's confusing. It took me a long time, and it took me to be sort of immersed in it with my son, and being involved in the NAL, and you know, and watching my son go out to the British Columbia Hockey League, and and so many people around the country, even you know, because now there's U18 teams and U16 teams in Arizona, in California, in Colorado, in Texas, in Florida, in the Carolinas you know, all over. And these parents are like, I need a friend in the hockey business. Right. And there's, there's family advisors that help these, these kids and these families. Um, but you know, there's some good ones and there's some not so good ones. There's, there's more than they can even cover. So I'm kind of trying to put together a platform that would, um, be helpful in educating the parents so that they can understand the, the landscape and then with players, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of sort of mentoring and teachings and content that I can probably share with them that will make them a better player, make them deal with adversity. We've talked about some of the things I've had to deal with. I've seen my son go through, you know, getting cut from every team growing up pretty much. He made one top team in our association and was a, got cut from, played on the, the second team all the way up in even his junior year got cut from varsity uh his out of the gate wow and then they brought him up later in the year and then he made it his senior year and but then he had to play two years of junior went to the british columbia hockey league played in the north american hockey league and and was able to to parlay that into a, a d1 scholarship um so i've kind of been along with him on that journey um, and I'd like to share some of that with, with parents and players. Much needed uh, spot for people to go look, and, and I hope that that launches, and I hope it's uh, successful for you. But we, the time has flown by here. and <laughs> We probably went over. Just no, a little, not at just all. Just a little. That's okay. <laughs> Tom, thank you. This has been an absolute fun time. The stories have been great. The experience has been fantastic. Mogi? And – you know, you mentioned uh, about losing the national championship with the Gophers, and you said we didn't touch on it. And it's like we already took an hour plus from you. <laughs> I mean, we could have gone on for who knows how much longer. We just yeah, we can't, we can't cover everything. So 
Huh. I'm, I'm right yeah, at the I'm right you. at the right age that I've got uh, a lot behind me and I've done some stuff currently and enough things happened that um, there's there's plenty to talk about. But um, you know, for me, this has been fun as well. Thank you for approaching me. You guys did the just came right up to me and said, "Hey, can we do this?" And I said, <laughs> "Sure." But it sounds like you've done it with a lot of other guys. It's a great it's a great show. It's a great format. Um, and I just, I feel lucky, you know, the hockey community is a great community. You guys are part of it. Um, and I've been blessed to be able to be around, you know, some of those 1980 Olympic guys I mentioned, some of the NHL guys that mentored me, Tom Curvers, Reed Larson, um, guys like that. And and uh, so it's, and then I got to work in TV around here with the Wild and, you know, Billy Guerin is a teammate and now he's the GM of the Wild. Um, he's pretty busy, so it's not like we're, we're not like hanging all the time at all, but you know, I've been, I've just been around a lot of stuff and it's, it's been a lot of fun. Well, again, we can't thank you enough for certain. Thank you very much. Yeah. Mo thank you guys. I would like to thank our featured guest, Tom Chorsky again, and a huge thank you to our audience. Special thank you to our sponsors, Market and Johnson, Parker insurance, Valley sports Academy, Northwoods therapy and Chippewa Valley orthopedics and sports medicine. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter and visit us on our website at thebreakoutsessions.com. And until our next episode, remember, stay on your inside edges. Yeah.